Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at King Estate with Ed King III. Uh, it's ju- June 13th, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us, sure, Ed. We really bet. appreciate this. Uh, so let's start with why wine? What got you interested? Well, first let's start with Ed King III. I never used that. Okay. But, but we, we did use it back when my father was alive to differentiate us because he's Ed King Jr. Sure. So we founded the winery, uh, Ed King Jr. and his son, Ed King, me, <laughs> in, uh, in 1991. Um, and we had been talking about uh, working on some project together in, in Oregon and perhaps winemaking, but we really hadn't coalesced around anything. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple small vineyards at that point, um, that, uh, but no winemaking and no background in it. Of course, we both liked wine mm-hmm. and uh, uh, had done some, uh, some travel related to wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, uh, we decided that uh, we would move forward with it, and I thought initially that we might do a relatively small project. Everything in Oregon at that time was small. Mm-hmm. There were no um, no really larger wineries. And um, so what we felt was at the time was that there were a lot of small wineries selling wine, their wines locally, mm-hmm. basically out the back door, out the cellar door. And um, uh, in general, in Oregon at that time, a lot of the people working in the wine industry weren't necessarily trained for the wine industry. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a kind of a, uh, uh, in many cases, I think, uh, be- became um, something that people uh, fell into. Uh, they Their interests carried them and carried them and carried them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in many cases, many of those pioneers, because of that, overcame tremendous amounts of things that most people would just have passed. It's in Baghdad, you know. I mean, they took financial risks. They took they took farming risks. They took um, branding risks. They, many cases, they might have known something about growing vines and a little bit about making wine, but th- there's a whole other world to uh, the packaging and the marketing and the sales and building a national business or building a business. In our case, we chose to build a national business. So we we had been in a national business, our family, and we did not have an interest in simply having a local mm-hmm. mom and pop shop. So our goal always was to go national or big. So uh, we didn't have a tasting room here even for years. Um, we eventually opened a small one and then as you can see now 27, 28 years later we have the restaurant and the tasting room and mm-hmm. everything over there. But um, So we started out with the idea that, well, how do you build a national business and how do you build it from Oregon? Well, we go for those distant states. So we went for Florida and we went for New York and we went for Texas and, and began to build those relationships and began marketing wines. And in some cases, we were still some of the first Oregon wines in some of those places because most of the Oregon wineries that predated our time were very small and were selling everything pretty much here. So um, that was a great time to be doing it, and it gave us an opportunity to establish Pinot Gris as well. Because mm-hmm. to the extent that Oregon was known for any wine, it was really Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. So, so there was plenty of interest, plenty of competition um, for that, but uh, no one was really doing much with Pinot Gris. And in our first vintage in 1992, we had one small tank out here uh, of Pinot Gris, and we tasted it, and it was uh, lights on. Well, we can take this varietal and do something big with it, which you know we uh, we feel like we have. Um, so uh, we started building in '92 on this building, so you can get some sense of how fast we were moving. We started the company in '91, bought this property in '91, started planting vines, um, and had uh, a portion of the building finished um, in '92 as we were getting ready for harvest. In August of 92, I had already contracted for several hundred thousand dollars worth of fruit from growers, mm-hmm. and we didn't have a roof 
on the building out here, which means we didn't have a license. The Treasury Department wouldn't let you make wine and own and possess wine if you couldn't secure the wine, because they want their tax money. Sure. So they could have simply said, no permit, and I would have been holding all that you know, fruit. So, you know, things were falling into place, and within a few days of the harvest starting, we had our permit and went after it. The construction was going so well, we intended to phase it and do that second half of the winery over time as we kind of like built the business and then mm -hmm. you know, it began to grow into our footprint. But we decided that it was going so well and we had such a good uh, construction company that we'd just go ahead and build out the whole thing. So at that point, 1992-93, we uh, had the largest capacity within the state to make wine and it was far beyond uh, any uh, business that we'd built. In other words, uh, we still, uh, uh, making wine is kind of the easy part. Uh, believe it or not, um, it's uh, compared to doing the marketing and sales. With thousands of competitive wineries out there, it's very difficult to um, uh, establish, you know, get your voice heard through the communications and marketing channels. Uh, even back then, there was a tremendous amount of noise in the channels. And of course, today, with whatever probably 500 uh, functional wineries in the state of Oregon, and maybe 10,000 in the United States. It's kind of hard, kind of hard to get heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, we're glad we started then, um, and we uh, new challenges come all the time. The industry changes, distribution changes, um, and really, it's been really fascinating to watch the Oregon industry grow up from really a lot of people that were sort of feeling their way along, and uh, you know, really cared very much about what they were doing. But you know the place for Oregon and the wine world didn't really exist at that point. Mm -hmm. So you know we faced a situation of well we're going to sell product from a region that no one is really in the habit of buying product from Oregon. Mm -hmm. I say well I've heard of California wine and I understand they're making some wine in Washington but I didn't know anybody was doing anything in Oregon. What are you making? P i n o t n o i r. People couldn't say it. So you're doing what? They could say Cabernet and Chardonnay, but Pinot Noir they had never heard of. Uh, Pinot Gris they'd never heard of. So we're out trying to sell a product that people can't say the name of, that's originated from a place that people don't expect to see the product to be from. And uh, they're unfamiliar with the qualities and the nature of, uh, of wines from Oregon. So it looked like um, a long haul. And, uh, and you know, really it was. <laughs> I mean, basically, um, it's something that at some point you realize, oh, this is going to take 10 years before we know how we're doing. Uh, so that's very unusual in most business situations. Most business situations, uh, you know, you, you look at your quarterly numbers, your annual numbers, whatever it is, you know, and you know, and you have a way to yardsticks metrics for how you're doing as a business. Well, you could, you could do that here, except that it's all going to be negative for a long period of time because you're just investing, investing, investing. Mm -hmm. And it's four to five years before a grapevine produces fruit, and then another year or two after that before that wine's ready for the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So you can see how it's very easy to get 10 years into uh, a wine uh, business enterprise uh, before you really even uh, are getting many signals back from the marketplace about how you're doing. So it's, it's a business for patient money and people who are fairly risk tolerant. And in our case, I think it was exceptionally risky in the sense that we came and made such a large investment in an unknown part of the state with, um, with I said, those other attendant uh, marketing and sales problems. So Let's talk about the part of the state. So what made this piece of land in this location, the spot you wanted to build? Well, I mean, it could have been a certain amount of ignorance on my part. I, uh, uh, you know, I lived uh, about 25 minutes that direction toward Eugene. Mm -hmm. um, I bought 100 and some acres in 1986 and had built a house. The three sons are, grew up on it that you met so far. And um, I had, we had horses and uh, I was looking for hay and there was a guy here in Lorraine that actually owned this property. He was selling hay, that's what was on this property. So he kind of a ramshackle house and 600 acres and the road to here from really the edge of Eugene to Lorraine was gravel. So you kind of had to want to come and you didn't bring your best car. So I don't usually put hay in my best car anyway. So I came out in the truck and uh, saw the place and was like, wow, you know, this would really make an impressive place. You know, once you stood on this hill, 
and as I said, there's nothing but grass. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, none of the buildings that we've built since were obviously visible. So basically it was barren, but you look up and down the valley here and you think, well, if you had a winery right here, this would make a heck of a spot. So I had a brother-in-law at the time that said the other hill should be, not this one, but he lost. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned uh, kind of family business before King Estates. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about pre-wine, what you, what you were doing and the family was doing. Yeah, okay, well there's two different tracks there. One is Ed King Jr. So uh, he founded King Radio Corporation in uh, 1959 in Kansas City. And King Radio Corporation started in our family's house's basement. And by the time it was sold in 1985, I think there were 3,000 employees, something like that. We had a factory in Florida and Singapore and provided most of the aviation electronics for general aviation, which is the smaller airplanes, mm -hmm. which were, had been through a boom period as well. Um, the um, general aviation market began to slow down quite a bit in the 80s. Uh, trial lawyers were going after, uh, I'm probably not supposed to do that. Uh, the trial lawyers were going after, um, um, but see, that'll look great in 50 years, so people go, what was that thing? <laughs> What's that giant thing in his yeah, hand? He didn't have the chip. <laughs> So, uh, um, yeah, what was that giant thing? I don't know. Um, so, um, it, the company was sold at King Radio in, in 1959, and I think my dad was ready to do something different. He'd been doing that um, since 59 to 85. Mm -hmm. And he, he, my mother passed away in the late 70s, so he had remarried, and um, you know, he, I think, was ready to really just do something completely different. He had a house in Arizona, so he liked spending a lot of time in Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, he only came to Oregon in the summers. He never, he didn't live on the property here or really participate too much in the early years of the winery because he was elsewhere. But, um, so after he sold the company, after we sold it in 85, uh, he uh, spent a lot of time in California building a ship, a boat, <laughs> to sail a sailboat. So, I mean, not with his own hands, but it, with, you know, <laughs> working on the design and getting it done. So, um, so then he went sailing for quite a few years. Um, and um, in, in my own case, I went to University of Kansas uh, for undergraduate, and then I got, um, I started my law degree there, finished at Missouri uh, in 1975, and then uh, went to Alaska and uh, practiced up there until 79 when I moved to Eugene to get an MBA mm -hmm. at the U of O. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what I was doing during that era. When I got out of the MBA program, I did a couple of different projects. One was back at King Radio Corporation in, um, in Kansas City area. And then the other was uh, I helped uh, Sacred Heart Hospital here in Eugene uh, start what was called the Oregon Heart Center. Mm. So that uh, was a great project. I was only with him uh, a few years, but it was, uh, got to know all the cardiologists and the surgeons and the hospital people and that whole environment, which was very, very interesting. And there was a really pretty powerful recession going on in the state of Oregon at that time. So to be able to be in Eugene and have a job actually was, made me very anomalous. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely unusual. Um, and in fact, Eugene was redlined at the time. You couldn't get a mortgage. If you wanted to buy a house, lenders weren't lending in the Eugene area because the real estate market was in such a nosedive. So it was, uh, but I always loved or Western Oregon, so it was kind of a no-brainer for me. And living in the Midwest, really not, not my favorite climate. And then, you know, Alaska, it had a lot of good things to it, but it had a long, hard winter as well. So I loved the Northwest. I loved uh, uh, being able to be outside year-round and the fishing and you know all of that. So, so that's what I was doing. And so then um, we, um, you know, we started shipping wine and a little bit in '93, '94, '95, '96, '97. Again, you know, the industry is also learning its way along. You know, throughout the industry. I mean, we people didn't know what clones to plant of what varietals here. So there was a lot of experimentation. Uh, maybe a lot of mistakes. Uh, it sort of became clear that Pinot Noir and the Willamette Valley were going to be a key, uh, you know, a key element that was, you know, became f clear fairly early on. And I think partly, you know, partly because uh, Pinot Noir 
really doesn't want to be grown on hot sites, uh, in spite of what Californians say. And it's it's burgundy, you know. So um, that's that's uh, all of the almost all the California uh, grape uh, varietals are grown on uh, in uh, climate zones or microclimates that are hotter than the same grapes are in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's uh, easy. They can dial it in, and they know they're going to get a harvest. Mm -hmm. Our situation, feeling our way along, uh, uh, 95, uh, 97, uh, for some reason, a lot of the odd-numbered years were tough harvests. You know, it would start raining in September and keep raining. Mm -hmm. You couldn't get pickers in the field. You couldn't get trucks in and out of the field. The totes would come back, you know, covered with mud. I mean, you know, you, it was a learning curve for, you know. And then, you know, um, uh, we started out planting uh, Davis clones here, uh, UC Davis uh, Chardonnay, for example. Well, you know, some years down the road, you discover that while there are these other clones from France, uh, like the Dijon clones, are uh, other clones that we could get that are more suited to um, uh, the cooler climate. Mm -hmm. bit. And so at that point, but all of those progressions, you know, they all took time uh, learning about that. Well, when it started out, people were still planting own rooted. So there was a lot of own-rooted uh, grapevines going in mm -hmm. the ground. They realized that uh, at some point that um, we, by selecting, well, first of all, they, no one was really recognizing that phylloxera existed in the state, mm -hmm. and that you know it, it's basically everywhere. But the line, the line was, hey, look, um, uh, it's not been discovered here yet, so let's use own-rooted vines. Uh, but everybody knew, anybody who really was very serious about viticulture knew that uh, it was going to be here. It's, it's everywhere in North America, so it's going to be an issue. So um, we realized very early on that we were going to have to go grafted, but no one knew also that certain rootstocks combined with certain cyan wood is going to have a different result in terms of, mm. of uh, ripening period and other characteristics. So it became very important in many cases to, to find a devigorating rootstock mm -hmm. so that you, you, know, you would basically have the plant focus a little more on producing grapes and less on producing vegetation. Sure. So those, all those things, on all that calculus, all that thinking, all that learning about different sites, that all had to go on. That all had to happen, and you, there's no way to fast forward it. You couldn't say, "Oh, well, let's throw another hundred grand at it and see if we can make it happen faster." Sure. Doesn't happen. So everything slows down the farm time frame. Everything f slows down to biology mm -hmm. and botany. So you know that's what you live with. That becomes your annual cycle, and that's what you have to work with. So heavy learning curve through the '90s. I think throughout the industry, mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, I mean, new wines, wineries were coming in. Uh, really, the the Walla Walla region became very significant. You know, the Oregon side, uh, in particular, grows a lot of great fruit. So, um, Southern Oregon began to develop and happen um, down in the Applegate. Uh, Bridgeview mm -hmm. was making quite a bit of wine. Um, basically, a lot of experimentation. A lot of risk taking. A lot of people that would bring, like I, I said before, you know, to take the, 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 you take your entire family and all its assets, move them into the middle of the freeway, and hope you don't get hit by a truck. That's essentially what a lot of people were doing. They were taking everything. It's kind of like watching everybody rush into cannabis a couple of years ago. <laughs> there was a little bit of that hell for leather. Let's go for it. You know, we're going to be a wine business. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just had no idea. They really hadn't thought through the, as I said, the length of time it takes to prove out a business model. Uh, in the in in the wine industry, you know, it's it's basically ten years in to find out how you're doing. You know, that's, those are the first reports. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's a business for um, for people with that view, and that's uh, unusual. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, Banks don't think that way. No. Business people don't think that way. So it's it's really has to be some other things that are also driving it. And people, it's sort of like. Uh, you know, you don't have an idea of how it's going to end, so you're you're volunteering, you're raising your hand to take the chance, and everything that goes with it. Mm -hmm. so, Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So you've decided your wine is what you want to do, and you, you found this spot of mm -hmm. land, and you and you have this mm -hmm. notion of a national a national big size winery. Mm -hmm. So what's your first step in terms of in, in addition to building the winery? What are you looking for in terms of planting? What are you looking for in terms of staffing? What is your kind of next step as you build the, build the business? 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of learning, and of course, you're always recruiting. I mean, you realize that if you're going to have sales and marketing, you need to start those processes long before you have a product to sell. Mm -hmm. If you wait till you have a product to sell, and frankly, this was a, a not unusual mistake for an Oregon winery to make back in the day is, well, why do we need anybody in marketing and sales? Why don't we wait till we have product to sell? All of a sudden, your barn's full of product, and uh, you, you don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. So you're on the phone saying, uh, hey, you want to buy some wine? I mean, literally, that's what's going on. There's no plan. Sure. So we um, actually had been around the block enough to know that we needed to do that. So we hired sales immediately. We began look, uh, looking for distribution and, um, and marketing, you know, considering branding. I mean, you, you know, you're starting, though, at ground zero. What are you going to call it? You know, people throw out names, you know. Um, uh, what what are the founding principles? What are, what's your DNA? You know, what guides your decisions? Um, you know, all those kinds of things. You can call them philosophy if you want, but they have to be they have to be thought through and they have to be uh, understood and kind of uh, you know adopted not just by one or two people that are thinking through these things, but everybody else. So basically, the uh, the values of the company uh, have to be. Uh, something that you can articulate, share, explain, and promulgate, increase, mm -hmm. make, make, make actual. Mm -hmm. so, um, so those are some of the things that go in at that point. So we were hiring marketing, hiring for sales. Uh, try, uh, but you're also uh, bringing in label designers to decide, you know, well, what does the script look like that says King Estate, you know? We had no idea. We're going to use block letters. We're going to use cursive. You know, what are you going to do? So uh, we, we had a designer from California that came with the King Estate that we currently have. I thought it looked a hell of a lot like Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, you know. Uh, but no, he, he swore to God it wasn't the same script, so the same font. So, um, so you know, you just kind of hashing your way through those things. And then you have to, uh, you know, you figure out what's the barrel regime going to be, what kind of... I think for a long time we bought mainly from just two or three Coopers, and now we probably buy from like 20 or 30. You know, still all French or almost entirely French. Mm -hmm. But uh, have you guys had a winery tour? Have you been around the winery? You guys should see the barrel cellar and some of there's some great facilities there. We're bottling today. We just are unloading our new labeler, which j today arrived like an hour ago from Italy. Awesome. Uh, from, we flew it over on an airplane. It landed in Seattle a few days ago, and then we just trucked it down. And everyone's like back on the crush pad, freaking out, <laughs> wanting to get it loaded because this is like, it's an exceptional machine. And we just bought another a, uh, a filler also from the same company in mm -hmm. Italy, and it's back there running today. You can actually see sure. see it. Uh, you could get some video of bottling. Sure, we'll check there it out. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. So anyway, we're excited for that. So yeah, so it, it, you always keep investing, you always keep making decisions, you always keep uh, trying to find uh, uh, talent, uh, people of integrity. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, let's see, I would say integrity is at least as hard to find as talent. Uh, uh, you know, you, I talked about the founding. Some of the founding uh, gu guiding uh, ideas that we had were that um, that. We're not uh, we're not uh, skilled at snobbery. We tend to we we came from farm farming people, mm -hmm. and so uh, what we thought worked about the American model was that um, that the the customer is respected. So we felt that um, our wines had to be high quality, no excuses. That they had to be available consistently instead of outages. Mm -hmm. The pricing had to be fair. Uh, and, 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 and consistent. And so, and really that's what we built our business on. Um, in some ways, like, uh, it's so, in some ways I guess you could say so traditional and so obvious that, you know, we missed out on some things about being just, you know, zany to get attention or crazy, you know, you know, um, uh, doing, uh, uh, today, you know, uh, it seems like uh, you really need to be, to be authentic, you need to do, uh, you, you shouldn't be traditional in terms of your approach to business, and mm -hmm. you should kind of be more off the wall uh, sort of stuff. So maybe we sort of boxed ourselves in a little bit with that, because I think we are seen as somewhat uh, traditional at this point uh, as a winery. But um, uh, 
I think they've been, in general, good principles. And you know, during recessions, for example, uh, we've always done very well. Um, and uh, we've been able to contribute in the community a lot. You know, the, whether it's paying our taxes or uh, uh, the, the um, charitable things that we have mm -hmm. been able to be involved with. Mm -hmm. And that's very rewarding because you become, you know, you're so connected to the community uh, when, when that's going on. You're, um, really become part of it. I mean, there's a lot of people in the in this area for whom King of Stage is like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's where they go for every special occasion. Mm -hmm. It's where, um, you know, everything from, you know, the birthday to the retirement party to the memorial service. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, at some point we realized it wasn't just uh, uh, us that owned it anymore. <laughs> it's the whole community. And then decisions are affected by that. You make decisions thinking about impact of what you do on everybody. You know, are, are your wages fair? Do you have health benefits for people? Um, do people have a chance to learn more and get promoted? Um, in the community for us, a lot of it's been around the food bank, um, where uh, I was on the board there. Uh, my son's on the board there now. Uh, we donate to two major events a year uh, that we put on for them to uh, and, we're, and we still do other stuff on top of that, mm -hmm. working on a new warehouse for them and stuff. So uh, so there's a lot of ways to be uh, sort of involved in um, social issues uh, from, the, from the wine point of view. It's really, you know, people don't, usually don't go to say like a plumbing supply company and say, hey, would you donate to our, you know, our relief nursery or our childcare function or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, would you, can we have some toilets out there? Can we get some, can we get some faucets for our event, you know? Mm -hmm. But wine, yes. I, that, I love wine for donations so they can get the donors in a mood to donate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you, uh, tell me about the importance of organic and biodynamic here at King Estate. It's an interesting thing, you know, we, we, we've all seen organic come and then sort of get run into the ground as everything's organic, you know, it's used too much and it doesn't mean anything. Well, we had a certification process, so we were certified by Oregon Tilth. Oregon Tilth is international in scope, they're not just a neighborhood certification outfit. And we did that for, for many, many years, um, and, um, but we also felt that, and we like the third party nature of that, because mm -hmm. you can go to France and people just declare themselves biodynamic. And you can't say they're not, because they say they are. There's no certification or anything. Mm -hmm. They can do whatever the hell they want. So we, we, um, we went with the certification process. Rudolf Steiner is a little unusual cat. Um, it's, you know, Waldorf school on this side and biodynamic uh, uh, food growing on this side. Um, but, and some of his things are um, a little out there, but he was working and talking and thinking at a time when industrial farming was basically beginning to happen in Germany. And he saw what it was doing. Instead of small farms in a region that are all integrated uh, in terms of almost everybody grows everything. Mm -hmm. And then they take what's, what the animals leave in the barnyard, they haul out to the fields for fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And they have this, basically it's a system that's self-perpetuating. And uh, you know, there's trade, but it's usually trade with the neighbor. They do pigs better, you do grain better, and you do a swap and all that. But it wasn't a monoculture. You didn't have 10,000 acres of, of, of um, you know, of, uh, of wheat over here and, uh, and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> industrial farming in the United States has turned into the same thing, where basically it's monocultural. It's one thing that's grown, um, and it's to the exclusion of these other it's a simplified biosystem. It does not include all these other integrated components. The thing that Steiner talked about that made sense to me and makes sense to me is the integration. Since, for instance, we have 470 acres of vineyard on this property, but we have 1,000 acres here in total, so we're less than half vineyard. Mm -hmm. We have wetlands, we have uh, old growth uh, oak trees, we have uh, woodlands, grasslands, we grow our own cover seed crop for the cover, cover crops that we plant on our, on our fields. Um, our compost program, we work with the bulldozer, it's over the hill. I think it's a thousand tons a year. If you haven't seen that, it's quite a process. So, and we have a certification for what we do out there and for what we do in here mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. So there are no chemicals, no nothing, none of the stuff that um, uh, 
none of the shortcuts and none of the and none of the stuff that's really not shouldn't be in your food chain. Mm -hmm. um, and then that extends to everything: the landscape, the flowers. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Fruit trees are all raised on these standards. So that's, that's where we're at. So does it make any difference if somebody on a thousand acres in the middle of nowhere in Oregon uh, goes by a dynamic and proves to the rest of the world that this is not the quick road to hell? The theory is, is that if you go organic or biodynamic, you're going to lose soon, right? Because some evil pest is going to come and you'll lose everything. Mm -hmm. well, well, you know, historically, the human race, from whenever we start fooling around with agriculture 15,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, up until about a hundred and some years ago was organic farming. Mm -hmm. The people who wrote the Declaration of Independence were organic farmers. People who fought the Civil War on both sides were organic farmers. Um, it was, that's not the experiment. The experiment is the part we're doing now where uh, uh, people just throw chemical combinations on fields for periods of time, years, decades, and uh, just to see what happens. And it's all in everybody's food chain. And, um, the, and they all, people will make arguments about efficiency. So industrial ag is efficient. You can, you can bring all these, you can get scale. You can get huge equipment and huge uh, tracts of land and huge this and huge that mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and get this huge scale. And you can make a cheaper uh, bushel of wheat than anybody else. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is, is it a better bushel of wheat than anybody else? No. It's just, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you eat that mass-produced wheat, that's what you, that's, you know. That's what you signed up for. It's industrial. It's not local. It's not clean, um, and um, it doesn't come from a diverse um, biosphere. It's it's from a monoculture. So what we're what we are doing here, and this is the largest biodynamic certified vineyard in North America, uh, is n not that it's going to make things better over the ridge. Mm -hmm. I think it might save some lives around here, both birds and people, uh, and what flows out our streams and rivers from here and gets in the aquifer and, and goes down the rivers and out to the sea. But it's to say that yes, you can, it can be done. Hmm. It can be done. So the idea that it can't be done keeps a lot of people from trying. Mm -hmm. And the example of somebody said, oh no, you can do it, and here it is. Mm -hmm. That's the importance of it. And, and so this little dot in the middle of Oregon is meaningless, but an example that shows that it's f possible, that's a whole different thing. So um, that's, that's the value here. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I think I see no reason why we won't stick with it. So, so when I say, oh, well, you know, it costs more to, you know, to maintain your vineyards and do various other things without using chemicals, but you know, they're not assessing the other costs at all. They, they give that a pass. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's sustainable. You mentioned that the, the plan was to be big from the start, uh, but they didn't... National. National. Yeah, so, so five companies basically in the United States produce 80, 85% of the wine. Mm -hmm. We certainly aren't one of those. Uh, they're all in California. Uh, maybe some a little bit in Washington with Chateau St. Michel. But basically, um, we're small in the wine world. Mm -hmm. uh, but we realized that uh, we didn't see any reason why we wouldn't want to be a national business and be distributed nationally. Mm -hmm. and, I, and we are in foreign countries as well. But um, and I think it's worked well for us. We're still tiny. We don't, you know, uh, uh, like if you, as I said, if, uh, really it's a drop in the bucket compared to, for instance, uh, Ernest and Julio mm -hmm. or whoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but scale does matter in the sense that People can find your product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you started with kind of without without a tasting room and kind of added mm -hmm. on as you go. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the additions, the restaurant, mm -hmm. tasting room, nursery, orchards, things like that that sure. have come. Well, part of the estate piece was to be an integrated estate. So that's where the the orchards come from. The berries, we have strawberries, blueberries, raspberries. Um, the integrated estate produced all those things. Uh, the thing we're missing actually is critters. I mean, in theory, we should have chickens and lamb and do that. Of course, they are in the region and they are in the area, and we like to say that you know Oregon produces the best of those ingredients that there that there is. I mean, you come to Oregon as a tourist, for example, and you have a tremendous opportunity to uh, 
for um, agritourism and for uh, food and beverage tourism. Mm -hmm. That's the future also too for, uh, in, for at least one channel of wine and, and food in, um, in the state is the ability of Oregon to stand out on the planet as a place that you can still go to where it's scenic, it's, it's clean, the, the values uh, that we have at this point at least um, and point us in that direction, you know, and the, uh, the seafood, um, the lamb, the beef, everything that we grow, um, the berries, the hazelnuts, apples, pears, plums, all of that um, being uh, global quality. When we're doing our job right, it's global quality. And the globe is starved for those experiences and for that quality. Why do people come from China? Um, just to smell it, breathe the air, and drink the water, you know? Mm -hmm. It's because in many cases the planet is struggling. And Oregon has a chance to, um, you know, to, to get involved in that uh, agritourism, that, that uh, global tourism that would allow us to really be recognized for the great things that are, we're doing in the state. Mm -hmm. um, and then these wonderful people go back to whatever country they came from or state and whose products do they want to buy? Who, who's up here? Oregon. So, so my, my theory is, is that if Oregon succeeds at this then, and, and builds brand Oregon as a global brand, recognized as a global brand, that we see um, uh, a lot of potential for those who work in agriculture or tourism here in the state of Oregon to make above commodity type wages and salaries, to make more than they would if they were just growing another bushel of commodity wheat yeah. or another, you know, you know, whatever uh, bushel of hazelnuts. I was on this um, panel uh, many years ago that with Senator Senator Wyden asked me and some other uh, people in ag to come just sit down at a table with him in Portland, talk about some stuff, and the cherry growers were saying that that they felt that they were done because as soon as China started growing cherries. The Oregon cherry grower was finished. Mm -hmm. and what happened is, is that Chinese wealthy Chinese people will pay, you know, over the top for an Oregon cherry mm -hmm. because they're seen and perceived as it's from Oregon. It's from this mythic place. <laughs> it's 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 in its top notch, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Same for the hazelnuts and everything else that we do. That's that's the world business that we want, mm -hmm. and it's clean. We can grow it clean. We can do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's that's one view of the future. Sure. Yeah. So you've been obviously involved heavily in King Estate since it got started. What's your favorite part of the job? What's your favorite part of your either the season, the the year? <laughs> what do you like best about? What King? do you like best, Jody? We like we like uh, we, the vineyard is always a treat. Okay. Mm -hmm. So vineyard in winter, one of Jody's favorites. Uh, Vineyard, um, uh, gosh, the snowstorm a couple of years, or the ice storm a couple of years mm -hmm. back. Oh my gosh, the entire all the vineyards, all the rows, everything covered in ice. It was just amazing. So the vineyards are always telling a tale. The raptors. We have these wild birds here that I don't see anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think partly it's because they can reproduce here. Their eggs hatch. Mm -hmm. um, so the hovering kestrels, the hair, the great northern harriers, the kites, the uh, the eagles, the osprey, everything. Uh, uh, that lives here, that's a show that goes on year-round, mm -hmm. which is really fascinating, owls. Um, uh, creative things, innovation. It's interesting that people, don't, they think of this as a very old and really traditional industry, but there's plenty of room to innovate in it, and I think that um, the innovation is where you actually get an edge in terms of uh, uh, market attention and um, and uh, chances to grow. Innovation can be a change in a label or it can be a new brand. It can be a new concept in the brand. Um, things like that. Um, people, uh, the people that, that I get to work with here, they're pretty amazing. So I have to say that um, it's really almost, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's beyond fortuitous, but um, the, some of the talents of the people that we get to work with here. One of the reasons I sleep at night <laughs> uh, is because I know that they're on the job. Uh, two, uh, you're just proud to work with them. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it makes you know a, a monster difference. And whether that person works in winemaking or grape growing or is uh, uh, construction or um, 
you know, many of the other positions, marketing, uh, sales within our company, it's, there's people that you just, you know, you're blown away by them. So that's, what do you think, Jody? Is that, what, what else is it, what else would you say? Camera's not on you, you're okay. <laughs> okay. So I say that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So creativity, the people, um, the opportunity to, uh, uh, it's been something else to be part of an industry. Uh, we weren't here at the very beginning, and 91's not the very beginning. Late 70s is kind of like, kind of in my mind, more. I mean, there were people here even before that, fooling around doing stuff. But really, uh, I'd say David Lett, uh, Dick Ponzi, Dickie Rath, David Edelsheim. Um, I think they were all here by the late 70s, early 80s. And again, everybody was still just trying to figure it out. And each year you take another run at it and try to understand what's going on. But basically, you're just making mistake after mistake after mistake, you know, and learning from them. And then maybe something goes right and you think you have it figured out until next year and you do it again and it's wrong. So there was a lot of that, you know, what kind of trellis do you use? You know, we started a whole business just doing crafting grapevines called Lorraine Grapevines, where we made hundreds of thousands of grapevines a year, selling them to people in California mainly, and in Oregon, who needed grafted grapevines. Because when we started out, no one was doing grafted grapevines at all. So we said, okay, that's an opportunity. But you don't really know that much about the rootstock. You have to start growing them first before you can harvest them and make them and so forth. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, no, that's, so there's another thing there. Um, uh, uh, we came uh, to the business with financing. We came with our own capability. You know, there's a lot of people that came into the business here and have not had the wherewithal, you know, that we've had. And of course, we are a real operating business. We don't subsidize it with, uh, we make money and, and um, we're, you know, we're a good operation, but we didn't come with nothing. And there are some people that have came into the business with, you know, basically uh, bootstraps. Mm -hmm. So th that's given credit, you know, for that because they they came they came to stay and fight it out, slug it out, and they put their lives into it. They put their lives into it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So seeing seeing that seeing that change and that happen, and sometimes it's it's kind of weird that like occasionally a decade. Uh, you'll understand this when you're a little older. Occasionally, a decade just goes. <laughs> but do you realize what, all the changes that happened mm -hmm. during that decade? You, an industry was growing up. So that that also has been kind of amazing just to see, you know, whether it's you know the industries, you know, IPNC or Salud or many of the other things. Our Solidarity Project this year. Would anybody have dreamed of that um, 15, 20 years ago? No. I just tell us more about. I mean, that's the question I was going to ask anyway. So tell us about Solidarity. Well, um, it was uh, our response to the story that we heard about. You know, the cancellation of the contracts, and um, you know, some of us felt that we should be involved because uh, it sounded like a very unfair situation and improbable. You know, you know, two weeks before or last before picking, just cancel all your contracts because there's been smoke there. Didn't pass the sniff test, so we figured we were going to do something. And um, so, um, you know, uh, I was talking with Jim Bruno about it and people here in our company and others, and I told him, look, we we're going to if that fruit's really good, we're going to go ahead and buy as much as we can and make a make a wine. We'll call it solidarity, and uh, let's, let's figure this out. So the enthusiasm was immediate. Um, the uh, decision to um, where the wines were going to be made, uh, how they were going to be made. Our tanks are all full. We couldn't do it. We were already fully committed. Um, but we found other, other wineries that had empty tanks. So then uh, we did the marketing piece of it. So the label, the, the shipper, everything. The landing page, all that had to be like that because mm -hmm. we just didn't, you know, it had to come together very quickly. So did the plan to make the wine. You know, what, what's, what yeast are we going to use? Where's it going to be made? What kind of, what's the oak regime going to be? Can we really do this? And what are we going to make? So, you know, I think, and our winemaker said this the other day, if we'd had more time to figure it out, we might have screwed it up. <laughs> you know, it was like we had to, you know, 
We had to get to it and make good, quick decisions. Willamette Valley Vineyards wanted to do the accounting, which makes all sorts of sense because they're a publicly traded company mm -hmm. and their books uh, get, get like, you know, the heavy scrutiny and the, you know, Securities and Exchange Commission is, is all about, you know, making sure that their numbers are right. So uh, they took that part. Uh, the, we worked mutually on the winemaking. Uh, we did the marketing uh, piece of it and, um, you know, the materials and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as we started taking the story out there, you know, retail's been very receptive and they wanted to do. So we'll be given a big check to the uh, Rogue Valley growers at some point here. It's going to add up, I think, to quite a bit of money. And, um, uh, you know, we hope to see them uh, use it to make sure that they don't necessarily find themselves uh, at the at the end of their um, at the end of their rope with the California wine and canceling on them again. The, the key for them is to build their own brands down there and to have demand for Rogue Valley wines. Mm -hmm. So their wines are being sold under their names and sold in you know in the state and out of the state but they create demand for their brands and for that AVA, for that appellation. Mm -hmm. That's the key for them. Right now, they're just growing for the California. So they're, just, they're like a colony, okay? The, 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 uh, the colonial figure is the Californians that come in, say, I'll buy your crop, then cancel on you, or do play the other games that they played, because um, they have them by the throat. So the way they have to do is build their own brands, build their own uh, demand for a rogue, mm -hmm. and and um, and then that won't happen to them. In the meantime, they find themselves sort of defending those people because they're the only ones that are buying their their, their grapes, you know. Mm -hmm. So that kind of has to be worked through. But and I do see possibility of, of solidarity continuing in some way. I think that the industry ought to consider that. I don't know exactly how we'd manage it, but there's so many things to be done in the state that could benefit from um, from um, a, a brand um, in the marketplace that people understood mm -hmm. uh, a, a portion of it went to mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, things in Oregon that that matter to us it might be the food bank you know it could be food bank it could be um, educational it could be you know all sorts of things but I think that uh, I think there's a case to be made for it continuing in some in some fashion mm -hmm. so the story is real good but then it just stops well, okay, that's fair, you know. True story, and then it says the end. Or is there something else? Mm -hmm. Is there another, is there a part two to Oregon Solidarity? And, you know, what is it? How does that work? Is it distressed uh, grape growing areas? You know, we're, we're certainly not done with fires. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, you know, how is it used? I don't know. But I, I would be, I would not mind seeing it continue. Mm -hmm. I think it's very constructive, so. In a lot of places, something like Solidarity would seem kind of unusual, but you, you mentioned things like IPNZ and Salute, places where Oregon has mm -hmm. come together before. So tell me a little bit about Oregon's, what makes Oregon unique in that way, uh, the, that kind of the kind of collaborative mm -hmm. spirit it's had? Yeah, well, I mean, there's fierce competition among all of us. Mm -hmm. and, and, and people can get, you know, personal and can get emotional. Mm -hmm. But, and you boil it all down, um, we're a lot of small businesses in the state, and a lot of this stuff, like I said, people worked it out together. We kind of um, figured these things out that no one was here to tell us about. California's had the universities involved for so long. They've had all the money that they've had, um, and it's just a very different, you know, they're down there on their 75% purity rules, and we're up here on our 95% or 100%. All those things tell you about the differences, you know. And as I said, you know, of all the great, of, you know, 80% of the wine in the United States uh, is, is made by the five companies. They're all in California. And um, the scale, you know, they don't have, like, vineyard, in many cases, vineyard next to winery, you know, where there's tasting rooms scattered around. A lot of the wineries are big industrial facilities that are way out back and you'll never see them. They look like... Uh, 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 petroleum distillation facilities, you know, they're, um, they're massive. And um, Oregon is just more authentic, it's more original, it's more honest, 
and you know you had all these small businesses that had reasons to help each other, collaborate and cooperate. Come up, write the laws and get them put in place. Create the Oregon Wine Board. Uh, try to husband our and wife our industry, <laughs> as opposed to um, the. Um, so those those areas of cooperation and collaboration, while still being competitors, is what's defined Oregon, and and uh, and that um, it's it, it's still a commitment to what's really uh, artisanship and, and craftsmanship. It's still a commitment to that that says it really really does matter what you do when you make the product. You're not making another tanker full of ketchup, you know, to send out to the planet. Who cares? You know, and you talk to people in food science all the time. They see the world in those terms: giant, vast quantities, factories, and and you know, and they all have their their techniques and their chemicals, and you know whether it's dairy or mm -hmm. whatever it is. This is not that way. We are literally the 500 ketchup stores, you know, all with a different spin, you know, all with a different message, all with a different. You know, mm -hmm. What I'm saying is, is instead of consolidating into one wine or five wines, Oregon's 10,000 wines, you know, of limited production. Mm -hmm. So it makes us pretty different. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, it's, it's so important that it continues, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And this is really bedrock, you know. If we don't continue um, with that, you know, with the integrity um, and, um, you know, with the commit, commitment to the customer um, uh, and food and wine culture itself, if it just becomes, you know, you know, busting out another tanker full, you know, we're done. We're like them. I can't drink that wine. You know, you go to the go to the go to Walmart and go down the row and you see, you know, uh, 150 wines. Well, they're all from, like I said, five wine companies and they all have this different thing going on, but it's not, it ain't for real, you know. Mm -hmm. So Oregon's got this thing and we're going to hang on to it. Where you can drive from here to Portland and stop at 100 wineries on your way. Real ones? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we live at a very special time. Yeah, very special time. And it's great to see this. many good things have happened with brewing and just craft distilling. Brewing's going through major change right now. And you know, hey, they were subverted by big brewers. I mean, big brewers bought the small craft brewers or they made up their own craft. I mean, you know, it's a constant battle to keep those people out. It's not going to stop anytime soon. No, I mean they want to ride on our brand equity. They want to ride on what's perceived of as. So you have, you know, uh, it's like it, you know. So if you could take grapes from Oregon to California, m cut all the corners and use the 75% purity rule, and then take it into the marketplace and call it Oregon, and sell it for nine dollars a bottle, and take away, undercut the business that's up here in state. Why don't you also, like somebody in Texas or Arkansas or Colorado can also buy Oregon fruit and go do the same thing and put it in the marketplace and say, here's an Oregon wine. Uh -huh. And we, we really can't have that happen. Uh -huh. So, you know, we, it's truth in the labeling, packaging, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's an important business ahead for us. Uh -huh. yeah. What did I leave out? You're doing, you're We're doing done? this is great. Okay. Almost okay. there, I got okay. a couple more questions for okay. you. you. You talked about your kind of early impressions when you came in as kind of a, a lot of people who maybe loved wine but didn't really have a business plan or didn't really, didn't really quite know sure. what they're doing yet. So what's changed since you guys started? What, what do you see now when you look at the Oregon wine industry? Well, there's some fairly polished uh, enterprises, you know, where people really do have it figured out. Um, there's a lot of homegrown wineries in the state that do, and then there's some that came from other places, but they came to Oregon, bought in Oregon, and are part of the Oregon wine world. So whether they came from France or they came from California, but they came and they are making wine in Oregon under Oregon rules, paying Oregon taxes, and um, and, and citizens, you know, in the community, that's very different. So. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. 
obviously started as a family business with you and your father, and now your 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 sons are involved. And Jody's and your and your wife's yeah, involved. Yeah. Tell me about uh, tell me about what that what that means to you, and sort of the uh, uh, unexpected challenges or advantages <laughs> of a family business. Well, family businesses are tricky, and you know people uh, put them on a pedestal as though it's some ideal. And I think what can be ideal about them is is family businesses could have a different set of priorities and a different time horizon than. Uh, than a uh, for-profit, uh, multi-owner uh, business platform. Um, uh, it, it, but it's tricky. Uh, you know, like there's family members here that are owners that aren't, don't live in Oregon. So they see family members here that are in Oregon and getting a salary working in the business. And so I have to constantly make sure that I am checking in with all family owners to make sure, you know, that we've got fairness, you know, in all directions. Um, one of the tough things, uh, and Jody experiences this, is that, especially because uh, we both work in the business full time, is that um, we, we, you take it home with you. You know, it's there on the weekends. I guess you get a lot done, and you know, and you have shorthand, and you don't have a spouse saying what's new at work on, or uh, or something like that. And she, and uh, but uh, but it's still, uh, you know, it does become sort of central in your existence. Um, and it's not, you know, as I said, it's I'm not, it's not a complaint. But, and um, so, yeah, you, 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 I look at people that do family businesses that last for many generations, and I understand that in many cases they just develop these hard and fast rules about how it's going to work, mm -hmm. and then and that's it. So if somebody comes in the business, starts at the bottom, excuse me, works their way up, and shows that they're really committed. To be in the business, then they're then they're allowed to buy in at a discounted rate. Uh, for th for those who don't get involved, aren't interested, won't commit, want to do something else, they don't get to buy in. Or if they have shares, they may be directed by some trustee or something that they're to sell those shares to so and so. So there's mechanisms that are like that. We never did any of that. I think it's because maybe my f my father's you know growing up on a farm in western Kansas. Um, you know, you, you uh, work went to those who could do it, <laughs> and and you, and you didn't kick the rest of the family out the back. You know, you did. This questions just didn't come up. You know, so, um, but you know, as you go through generation, another generation, another generation, I think it's hard to keep it upright and going down the road, mm -hmm. and especially if you find <clears throat> talented people that you could have in an executive position that, in fact, um, aren't a family member. But there's a family member that would also be a candidate for that job, mm -hmm. and what do you, you know, what are you going to do? Well, so all those things are are there, very real considerations. It's not easy. I think it's complex, but I'm not really complaining. I mean, my my interactions with my family um, are excellent. I mean, I've, um, but part of it's just, you know, if you just it's about who you are every day, mm -hmm. and if you're that way for. 30 years, then you're probably going to have good relationships. And if you're if you're uh, snaky, it's probably not going to last very long. <laughs> so, what do you see as you look into the future for King Estate? Uh, I just see dessert over there. Does everybody know about that? <laughs> um, wow. Well, see, that's the good question. Uh, the, I'm always trying to look over the horizon, and uh, it's not easy. Um, and uh, I think change is uh, continuing. Uh, we have to build our direct business a lot. Wholesale has changed dramatically. Wholesale distribution is, the consolidation at wholesale has, has really been uh, kind of destructive. Mm -hmm. And it hurts small wineries like Oregon is. Um, and um, so uh, people will be moving to other types of distribution, wholesale distribution, but also direct to consumer becomes bigger and bigger, direct marketing of all mm -hmm. kinds. So uh, Jody runs our club, so she's very engaged on a lot of direct stuff, but we're also just in the process of building that. So you know, we have a huge wholesale section, uh, which is battling all those changes in distribution. And then on this side, we have um, our direct business, which we have a lot of great small production wines, which aren't in the marketplace, which we're getting a chance to bring to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But you've got to find the channels to tell your story. You've got to be social. You've got to be uh, able to do great uh, email campaigns. Uh, we're we're really desperately trying to find um, e-commerce uh, capable people. Mm -hmm. It's 
It's very scarce uh, out there, especially anybody who knows anything about wine. So, um, but the building of the direct piece is real important. Um, so it, that puts us in some interesting model areas because uh, like we have 50 or 60 of these very limited production wines that no one knows about and they're not in wholesale. So how do you get in front of a customer? How do you find somebody? Well, restaurant. We're going to take the bistro, that's the building you pass on the way in down here, put a wine shop in there this year. Mm -hmm. And then maybe other wine shops. And then there's, you know, um, um, email, direct mail. There's telesales. We hear people are getting on the phone and calling people, I guess, you know, with lists. And a lot of these things need to kind of loop around. Like, mm -hmm. if you're going to send somebody an email uh, about, like, something they might purchase here, or join a club or something, then you might want to... Actually, if you have an address for them, you might send a card or something, an actual physical thing that goes through the mail and gets to them, you know, maybe a few days before the email comes in or something, mm -hmm. with the idea that you got to touch them, you got to engage multiple times, and you got to find reasons for them to engage with you. Mm -hmm. So that engagement piece, uh, and we've talked about, uh, what was the, the last engagement thing you were talking Basically, it's ambassadors. It's, um, it's recruiting people to a relationship with the company mm -hmm. where uh, they're going to have special information and insight into what's going on within the company. They are basically charged with being uh, an advocate for the company in their, in their world. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be that this is replacing the, um, uh, what do they call the, the previous one, previous type of uh, influencers, the uh, I think the influencers thing we're suggesting is over or uh, done. So uh, you know you can you, you know the idea of trusting or you know buying into that is kind of. Mm -hmm. I thought it was sketchy a while ago, but now we're willing to put um, it in the ground. Sure. So uh, so the, and there'll be something else after that. So that's going to continue. Yeah. So. What about as you look at Oregon wine in general and as you look into the future? What do you see down the road 10, 15 years? Well, we're going to have to fight off the people that wanted to base it. So that's, that's, so protecting uh, the brand equity and protecting our values here is going to be very important. And th there will be challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and we, uh, it's just watching the lobbying effort that's taken place this year in Salem. Um, you know, we've been very involved in, in uh, the legislature for many years. And uh, so we continue to be, and um, we've had uh, we've had trouble getting through some of the bills that we've wanted. So we'll be back, but but basically it's a truth and labeling situation, and uh, and and basically I mean misrepresentation in the sale of goods has been unlawful in this country for a long time, but it keeps sneaking in the back door. So yeah, yeah. So that has that battle has to be fought. I I see most of the south, the appropriate sites between here and, and whatever, Newburgh, being planted. I, I think that uh, if we continue to have relatively similar climate that we've had to the last 25 or 30 years, I think Oregon wine will simply rise to the top in the world. And I think that we'll see vineyards from here to there. And I think that this will be uh, a world destination. Um, Maybe, maybe beyond any. I mean, you can talk. People could talk if they want to about France or Italy or Spain or New Zealand or Germany or whatever. All great, but you know, uh, how's the air? Uh, how's how overrun is the tourist? Uh, can you actually go to those places without simply being run down by a mob of tourists? You know, how do you? You know, how? Uh, uh, I I think we still we still have our we still have our cards to play, mm -hmm. and and it's our opportunity to get it right, and I think we can do that. But it's going to be a whole different model. I think it'll, it will be more like France, for instance, a lot of small vineyards, and it's going to have to be. Uh, it may have to be cast in law. I don't know, but basically, um, and then people that move here to be in the wine business need to play by our rules. You know, that's the thing, and you know that many of them have, like the the French, you know, the Durands or. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jackson m moving here with uh, and buying wineries and, and being part of the community. You know, mm. Eugenia Keegan's on the wine board uh, w with Justin. Uh, you know, they're uh, they're participating and they're part of the community. Mm -hmm. That's 
night and day from the person who's taking wine and taking grapes and you know Mm -hmm. and you're probably aware of the story, but you know about how much they even tried to make the packages look like it was from it was Willamette Valley, not just Oregon wine, but Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. I've got one of the bottles downstairs, and uh, so completely uh, shameless. And uh, I don't even know how they got it through the Treasury Department or anything else. Well, I suspect it. I suspect the process. I'm glad you guys are here to fight the fight because yeah. it's important. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting watching the old dogs too. Like, Chris, uh, sometimes that seems some of the second win seems to happen after retirement. Because <laughs> I've noticed some of the guys that are campaigning bills and stuff, or uh, uh, may have sold their uh, business, or uh, or have retired or something, but they're not done yet. Mm. So bless them. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think that's the thing, you know. And uh, this, uh, and maybe it's an individual um, individuality, mm. uh, you know, instinct in Oregon. I just hope we hang on to it, too. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a fight we can win, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But people don't even see it mm -hmm. as a problem, then we're not going to probably win. Right. So we have to get past that. So the word's still getting out mm -hmm. that we have this problem. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to people. So I think, you know, the politicians know. They're hearing about it, so. Sure. So that's about it. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is okay. there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Anything else you'd like to talk about here at the end? I have to see what Jody says. Jody, what else says? <laughs> okay. Well, yep. Thank you so yeah, much my for your pleasure. time and your yeah, answers. Anytime, and if you need to talk more or you need to have a question, call me or sure. get, on, get on the phone or whatever. Appreciate sure. that. We'll yeah. do. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.